All right, welcome back to another episode of the Guys with Feelings podcast, where two guys discuss the ideas, influences, epiphanies, and yes, the feelings that make them better men. My name is Jamin Yee. I'm Gabe Rose. And today we have a special guest with feelings joining us, our good friend, Peter Kraus. Oh man, how to how to describe Peter? The enigma. Uh, the enigma that is Peter. Well, for the the seven of you out there that don't already know Peter, uh, Peter is an amazing DJ and musician. He's the best snowboarder I know. A guy who actually fixes his own car. Wow. Um, and for his day job, he actually recently transitioned from working in a travel company to being a software engineer in just nine months, which is something we're excited to talk about today. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks, guys. No, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Pleasure to have you. <laughs> How you doing today? Good, man. Life is good. Yeah. Yeah. I heard you got your bike peed on recently. <laughs> We're just getting right, right to the deep, yeah, yeah, deep yeah, shit. Yeah, vulnerable, right. vulnerable deep stuff. <laughs> was that today? Uh, no, this is uh, Friday. It's very recent history. Yeah, the neighbor's dog tried to claim ownership of my of my bicycle. So I had to pee on it afterwards <laughs> to make sure the dog knew who's the rightful owner. Can't be getting things confused. I think Alpha. the message got through. I think the message is clear, yeah. yeah. yeah my dog. Dog trainer, that's what they say, is to make sure you pee, pee on yeah. everything in your house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's All the right. only language they understand. <laughs> Always key. Um, yeah, and this is not, not just any normal bike. I, I want the audience to know, Peter Peter rides <laughs> like a Batman bike. It's like it's like this crazy, it, yeah, it's a bike Batman will ride. It's like black, sleek, like metal, all this crazy shit. And it's electric powered, so you can move at the speed of justice. But still, but still, you still pedal. It's not like an annoying, like, like diesel motor or something. Pedal assisted. Yeah, yeah, electric assisted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's an important clarification. I'm still pedaling. I want to <laughs> let the record state and I was still pedaling yeah, yeah, the entire yeah. time. <laughs> Indeed. And it's your main commuting vehicle. It's yeah. how you get to work every day. Well, it's awesome. I just did a 60 mile ride actually on Thursday. Six zero. Six zero. Wow. Culver City to Palos Verdes. Woo. Yeah. Were you with it? It was just on solo? Solo ride. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no one can keep up on a on a regular bike. No, no, I don't think so. Especially not one that he's claimed ownership of. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, let's get right into the show. So as always, we're going to start with a conversational potluck where we'll bring two meaty or vegetarian topics to the table to explore in depth. And then we'll finish with our rapid fire quick picks, sharing the top two things we've each been obsessing and recommending uh, during the past month. Um, so yeah, let's get right into the conversational potluck, starting with our illustrious guest with feelings. So, Peter, yeah, um, one of the many reasons we wanted to have you on today, aside from talking about the dog peeing story, was uh, was to hear about um, and and share with our audience a little bit about your career transition. So you, I think it was two years ago, made a pretty dramatic shift in your career from working for the travel company you were to be with to being a, a software engineer in just nine months. Um, why don't you just like tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So... Yeah, I'd reached a point with my career at the travel company where it felt pretty stagnant and I wasn't really feeling satisfied or felt like there was a lot of growth potential from where I was and had kind of reached a crossroads where I knew I wanted to do something else. And the biggest challenge I think what a lot of people face when they look at switching a career is what, like, what am I going to do next? And so 
I was fortunate enough to, through that company, be exposed. We hired a software engineer before um, my friend and one of the, the, the founders. We've been doing most of the software work ourselves using a variety of tools. I've always enjoyed computers, worked with computers. Uh, but we got to a point where we need some more serious skills to get to get the things built that we mm-hmm. wanted. So I became took on more of a product manager type role where I was kind of driving the products that our software engineer that we hired was working on. And seeing what he was doing, he was the only one there. So if he was out of the office, then it was on me to figure out if something was broken, if there was a bug. Peter, start coding. Yeah, <laughs> so it out. Thrown into the thrown into the pool, if the deep end of the pool, if you will. But seeing that, I think also broke down the barrier that I, I had always had with with coding and software development as something other people do. Mm. Never felt like, oh, this is this is not really for me. And right. once I started to actually get exposed to it and see it. I thought this is actually really cool. And there's a lot of problem solving, kind of fixing and solving puzzles all day. And just that little taste I got from there, I started to just scratch that itch and start just watching videos. There's tons of content online. That's the beauty nowadays. Any any topic you're interested in, yeah. you can find resources anywhere. So, so did you make like a conscious decision like you're like, oh, I want to switch careers. Or were you just kind of interested in coding and wanted to learn more about it? So it started as an as an interest. And I, I still remember the day that I made the decision that I was going <laughs> to do it. Uh, I had been playing around again, watching videos. And I made the decision one day. I said, within a year, I'm going to be a software developer. That's wow. what I'm going to do. And I still remember that day I actually went, it was it was at, at the office. I was sick of whatever I was doing. I said, yeah. this is it. I'm going to do this. <laughs> I need to find the fastest way to do it. I had found boot camps. There's mm-hmm. a software development boot camps. I said, I'm going to sign up for one of these. And within a year, I'm going I'm to be a software developer. And I remember going to the gym after work. And I didn't even say anything. It must have just been on my face. I'm checking in with the woman at the front counter. She goes, you have a really great energy about you today. <laughs> And you're like, yeah, I'm yeah. gonna be a software yeah. developer. I'm controlling, <laughs> controlling my destiny. <laughs> Step out of the way. <laughs> time for yoga class. <laughs> time, time to get stay limber. But first, yeah. first some squats. <laughs> so, and that was really just validating that this is the that feeling. Obviously, I was projecting that into the world. Is like, okay, this is this is the right thing. And I made a yeah a very intentional decision that that's what I wanted to do. And tell us like a little bit about the boot camp experience. I think a lot of people and maybe people have thought about getting into coding or like at least vaguely familiar with the idea that there are a lot of these boot camps popping up uh, to train people in coding. Like what was that experience like? How is it similar than what you expected? How is it different than what you expected? Sure. Yeah. So the, the first decision I made was I wanted I want to do this as what's the most expedient way to make this happen. I don't <laughs> want to mess around. I don't want to do this part time. Right. How can I dive fully into this? And get to where I want to go the fastest. I was doing videos after hours. It was an hour here and there. And I said, okay, in five to ten years, maybe I could do this professionally. Um, but hearing about boot camps, that seemed to me to be the way. This is how I can really accelerate learning about it. At the time, there were only a couple available in, in Los Angeles. That number's since grown. They were big in, in San Francisco, of course. A lot of different companies offering that. But most of them, it's some variety of a 10 to 12 week immersive program. Uh, the one I signed up for was a 12 week program. You're going, it's like a full time job, if not more so. There's nine to five basically instruction. And then after that, you're working on projects. 
Uh, you're working on teams with the other people in the class, collaborating, learning how to work together with other people, and also developing your own your own skills. Yeah, I remember. So we were living together at the time. It seemed like it was like 12, 14-hour day. I mean, it yeah. seemed like you were just like <laughs> cranking all the time like for, for 12 weeks straight, which is a lot of learning to get jammed in. Yeah, I basically lived at that at the school. Yeah, <laughs> and um, even even before you were doing the boot camp, um, you were learning a lot of stuff on your own, right? Right. Was that helpful? Like, would you, if you could do it over again, would you still have done that, or would you have like gone straight into maybe? Just no, absolutely. Boot camp? And that's what I recommend other people that have asked me about potentially switching careers or specifically software engineering. I would definitely recommend doing self-exploration first. Mm. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of time to invest into taking a boot camp or any kind of transition um, without knowing if this is something that you will genuinely be interested in. So taking that, I took about six months of doing videos and courses online and playing around saying, hey, is this something that I think I'll actually enjoy as a career? And I know people that didn't do that that went into the boot camp, I don't think had results they were probably happy with. Hmm. So I, I got to a point, I said, I know this is something that could work for me. I know I'm not very good at it yet, but I understand enough about it that I can see the potential and I'm excited about where that could go. And I think that's really a good, a good way to, to start. And and what percentage of the people that were, say, in your class, um, and granted a small sample size, but in your experience, like what percentage of people in the class would you say sort of like successfully made the transition and wound up like doing what you've done, like working as a coder sort of at some point post-class? Yeah, so... Ones who went directly into software engineering, I would say it was probably 20% or less of oh, the wow. class. Of everyone that started the class ultimately yeah. really like wound up getting a good job at the end of it. Yeah, and that's not to say there weren't other positive uh, outcomes for mm -hmm. some of the other students. Some actually got into, found a different career path. I know a couple of students actually got into UX design, so another, okay. another uh, you know, practice within that industry. So they found actually, oh, the coding wasn't necessarily exactly what I wanted to do or didn't fit perfectly for me. Maybe they had a better sense of maybe better design sensibilities. So it actually kind of led them in a different direction. So I know a few of the students that went that way. Um, and then some students actually come in with the intention of just learning more. Maybe they're product managers. Maybe they work with engineers and they want to mm -hmm. understand it better. So people have different, different goals when they come to the class. But um, yeah, I would say somewhere about 15 to 20% of people actually went in, came out, are now working as uh, software developers. Okay. And did you notice any like common qualities in the people who, who quote unquote made it and like actually like, yeah, got a job in coding afterwards versus people who maybe weren't as successful? Yeah. So one of the things, and I talked about with a few of my friends from the, from the camp that, that have gone on to, to become engineers one of the big things was not focusing. It's it's so it's very challenging when you're in one of those. You're there's pressures of I need to get a job after this. There's always the question of Am I going to be good enough? Am I going to be successful? Do I have what it takes? There's a lot of a lot of self doubt starts mm -hmm. coming in. It's very challenging and exhausting. So there's a lot of opportunities for you to question yourself and your decisions. I would say the people that were successful spent the least amount of time worrying about your outcome at the end as far as like, hmm. am I going to get a job? Mm. Where am I going to get a job? How is that going to work? If you can set aside those fears, my my focus was how much can I learn? Mm. Okay. How much can I push myself to develop these skills? I don't care about everything else. That, that will all fall into place if you have 
the capability, the technical skills, and you build the relationships. When you really focus on that core, instead of worrying about the extraneous things around that, because those are just things that will slow you down and distract you from what's really important for what you need to learn. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I remember another thing you, you talked about with us at different times about the experience was was it wasn't just about learning the skills at General Assembly, but the network that you got. Can you talk a little bit about like what role that played in both like your learning experience and then also like the career transition? Yeah, and that was one of the parts that was the most exciting to me about the career transition too, and that I was almost a little bit surprised to find in the software community is there's a lot of people open to making new connections, sharing their knowledge, sharing their experience. I think there's this idea of startups, everyone kind of hides their ideas mm-hmm. and doesn't want to give away too much. Yeah. But I found I found it to be the opposite experience. And I found the more that I opened myself up to those opportunities to meet new people, we would have guests come in from whether they worked in another company or had a startup or we would host, uh, GA did a great job of hosting events and really trying to plug into the community in the tech community in Los Angeles. And um, yeah, that making those connections has is that's why i am where i am today as far as uh career opportunities is it wasn't from, just the hard skills it wasn't it was just the, the hard people. skills no yeah. it's through referrals from an instructor or from a friend i made with a project i worked on actually my final project there was an artist who wasn't even involved with general assembly at all he just happened and to be general in the same assembly is the, the is boot, the boot camp the boot camp I went is to. the boot camp i went to uh-huh. um but there this, was an artist in residence on the same floor completely unrelated to the school. And I just I saw her in the hallway one day and we just started, just I struck up a conversation with her and was really interested in her. She did beautiful illustrations, beautiful paintings, sculptures, mixed media, all sorts of really cool, really cool stuff. And kind of we developed a relationship over the 12 weeks I was there and we ended up collaborating. She did a, an art installation at the, at the studio and my final project was working with a couple other people from the class in developing an app that was a companion to her art gallery. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I love creative pursuits. I love music and art and, and being able to tie in this new skill and this new career path with, with an artist was an amazing experience. And that, again, led to other connections. And it all, it all kind of created this, this network. Right. Um, which I feel like sometimes sounds as this cliche, like, oh, it's all about networking. But it's not it's not the idea of like going somewhere and handing business cards. Yeah. It's always just starting conversations with people. And sometimes mm-hmm. they don't go anywhere. Like right. you'll I'll have a conversation with someone real quick and you realize there's no connection there. But you do that enough, you start it's an idea of like planting seeds. Yeah. Where not all of them are gonna grow into something, but you never know. A random two minute conversation in the elevator might turn into someone who remembers you and sends you an email for a job they think of you for. Right. So that's, uh, I mean, <laughs> they're both go hand in hand, the technical skills and the, and the network that you build, but you can't, you can't go without one or the other. Right. Yeah. You know? And what I'm hearing is like, so you did recommend that, you know, in the beginning, really do the self learning on your own, explore it on your own first, but it sounded like something like this boot camp was crucial in like getting you around other people who are also exploring this and making connections, teaming up with people and like forming those relationships, which seem to be just as crucial, sometimes even more crucial than the actual skills themselves in getting a job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of self-taught software engineers that I respect a lot. That takes a lot of discipline and willpower to do that on your own. Um, but the reason, one of the biggest reasons I didn't go that route is because I wanted I wasn't part of that network and I wanted to get 
involved in the scene, get involved with the people that were doing things. And so the boot camp and, and general assembly specifically, one of the biggest draws for me was their focus on community. They have a lot of different boot camps across the country. So there's yeah. an opportunity. Hey, if I move to New York, I know I can stop in general assembly. I can meet people there. You can start building a network somewhere else if, if, if necessary. Awesome. So that was the piece I said that, that social networking element was the big driver to actually do a boot camp as opposed to just self-learning. Cool. Yeah. And like, I feel like that's like my, when I think about career transitions and, and both of our partners are career transitioning right now. It's <laughs> yeah. so like, they can talk about this a lot nowadays. Like, yeah. I feel like that's my strongest opinion is like, it's not like go network, although that's a piece of it, but it's like, I think understanding that like all these sectors, whether it's tech or video, any sector, like, is a dense network like they're all these people like know each other there's all these like existing relation this web of relationships mm -hmm. and like as you start meeting people and talking you just have to find whether it's through a boot camp or a program or just just through just a lot of like randomly emailing people and taking them out to coffee and asking for them like when you just start digging in you start sort of getting enmeshed in the network you get like you start to see the connections that are already there and people start to like know you and refer you to other folks but it's just like yeah, like relationships are so vital. They're vital in everything, but like right. especially when you're trying to make a switch, like you just have to invest the time in building those relationships somehow. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so so just to get an overview of your journey, like if you give me like the brief timeline. So the beginning, you're you're just you're working at a travel company, had zero coding experience. Decided went to the that fateful day when you went to the gym, <laughs> decided that your destiny, you're like in one year. I will be working as a coder. And then you did self-learning for about six months? About six months. And then you found General Assembly, went there. How long was that program? It's for? a 12-week 12, 12 program. Okay. Yeah. So for three months, you're at General Assembly, meeting awesome people, working with people. And then at the end of the program, did you just did you just find a job? So I started doing freelance work. That was the first thing. Okay. Um, again, and all... I had several contract gigs that came up and this was all through connections, whether it was through an instructor, a friend, somebody I met at one of the talks and was lucky enough to string together a few different contract gigs basically. Mm -hmm. And that, that was actually really helpful in establishing my confidence because I had done a lot of work in a classroom setting, which although it's real working software, it's not the same as having something in production that yeah. people are paying for. Right. So going through and actually having a chance to concretely use my skills to build something that's actually uh, for a client and then seeing that out in the world and being well received and getting through it and saying, Oh, this is, I can, I can actually, do I that. can do this again. That built my confidence. And right. then I, right after that too, I also took the opportunity to start uh, tutoring and mentoring myself of new students that came into general assembly, mm. um, which is another technique I find very helpful is to even early on, I was by no means, I'm still by no means a master at, at software engineering, but at every stage you can help teach somebody or give them some advice, mm -hmm. no matter, even like if you're still behind you. Exactly. Yeah, 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 there's yeah. people, there's always someone who's going to be a step behind you. So I think, Taking that opportunity to then, and it solidifies your understanding of what you're learning right. when you have to explain that yeah. to somebody else, I find to be very effective. So the combination of doing freelance work and then um, mentoring, tutoring, being a TA at General Assembly, uh, that really helped me get the confidence of, okay, I'm, re I'm ready to start applying. So one thing I also did, uh, another thing I would advise is 
not taking the first offer necessarily. I think that mm. was a very tempting fruit <laughs> for a lot of people from the course that huh. they just want to get into a job and it, it's understandable as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes that can cause you to take maybe not the best opportunity for you. And it might actually kind of start to jade you if you get into the wrong place that isn't interested in investing and helping a new junior person learn, Mm -hmm. helping really you develop your skills. Um, So I think finding the right, the right environment, um, getting yourself to a position and not just taking the first offer uh, for me was really important. So I took some time again, doing contract work, um, keeping myself along that way until I found an opportunity at a a startup downtown Mm -hmm. that was working, uh, bit of a almost an incubator if you will yeah but a more a wholesome approach towards we would put together we'd have entrepreneurs that would come in to the company and they would put together teams uh technical teams so product manager ux designer software engineers and we would help develop their product their vision their application whatever it was on top of that we'd also be working with the the entrepreneurs to help them develop their pitch and help connect them with investors in the in the city so they could raise money. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of their time at our studio, they would then have a team that's ready to go, that already knows how to work um, together and with the certain kind of ideals that we instilled in everybody that came through the doors. And they would now have a company that's like ready to go out into the world with our continued support. Um, and again, that connection came through <laughs> another instructor that yeah. I had met at a party at General Assembly, uh, when I was doing, when I was a TA, it was an instructor party, and we just struck up a conversation, and I had this moment that I, I feel like I'm going to work with this guy at some point. <laughs> I just, we just connected again. Yeah. We t- I think we talked about snowboarding. It wasn't even, it wasn't even business talk. Yeah. And yeah, I just saw something pop up, connected with him, and you know, all of a sudden I'm working there as a software developer. <laughs> I'm helping tutor our new engineers. We bring in some junior people to it's, it's, it's an educational experience for them. And it's uh, it's a good deal for uh, an entrepreneur who can work with maybe a, a little more green um, talent, but they can learn and like grow together. Right. Uh, so it was kind of helping new people come in and get used to the system and help, help train them and, uh, and help build up these companies. And it was an awesome, awesome experience. That's awesome. I think just one more question for me. I'm curious, like for anyone that might be thinking about going down the same route you mm-hmm. went down, like what does the cost look like, like in general for these boot camps and, and how do people make that work financially? Is there any sort of loans or do people just have to have like the cash up front? Yeah. So at the time, you know, I'm not familiar with what the loan situation looks like right now. So the course I took, I believe at the time was 14000 to do. Mm-hmm. So you can probably range, I would guess they're anywhere from like 10 to probably close to 20 at, yeah. the, at this point, depending on the camp. Um, yeah. So the financial element is definitely a, is definitely a, a real, can't, can be a barrier. Um, yeah. I'm not too familiar with, with programs as far as uh, financial assistance for those. Unfortunately, that's part of the, the, the difficulty boot camps have is it's not the same as a university where you can get a student loan. Right. For example, I know they're working on developing, um, ways to make it more accessible. But the other thing too is there are different types of programs. So if you can't afford a specific boot camp like that, there are some in-between solutions where you can do it online and you work with mentors. Mm. So you can you do an online course, but you're also have the feedback 
And you kind of have somebody like with a watchful eye looking at the work you're doing. And those typically cost a little bit less. Again, I would recommend a boot camp if you're, if you're serious about it, just making the financial investment. I put a bunch of things on credit cards. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not working for three months. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's so like the a, cost, it's a tough the, hit. The yeah. other cost to think about is not just what you're paying for the course, but your monthly expenses, your right. rent still do. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> they don't just yeah, wave the rent. Yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> it's funny that it works that way. Yeah. But. Uh, right. So that's the other thing to keep in mind. But, uh, it, you know, I, I would without a question say it was absolutely worth all the financial investment um, for not only the financial payoff of the career that I'm on now, but my overall just happiness and satisfaction with my career trajectory now Yeah, is, um, yeah, eas- easily worth the cost. And you beat your one-year deadline by three months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You should go back and tell the woman at the gym. <laughs> that's amazing. Awesome. Uh, well, dude, thanks so much for sharing that. That's that's really cool. I mean, do you? I'm curious. Do you have any, like any last pieces of advice for maybe anyone going through a career transition right now or trying to? Yeah, I would say. It's very important to do it for the right reasons, too. Uh, I think specifically of, of software engineering because I think there's an allure of, oh, it's financially it could be really beneficial for me or it's an interesting thing right now. I think it's very important to find whatever it is that is true to yourself. Um, it happened to be a really great mixture for me of, again, creativity, problem-solving, puzzles that really was a perfect fit for the kind of things I like to do, but that's yeah. not the same for everybody. It's It can be just painfully difficult to deal with problems, frustrating, you right. want to throw your laptop out the window. And so if, you, if you're not passionate about it, it's, it's, it's not going to be worth right. your time. Um, so I think, again, that trial period is so key to see, um, you know, I was talking with your wife, Sarah, who's, as you mentioned, is in the middle of a career transition, and she's been volunteering time and would come home, she said, exhausted, but felt happy yeah. and felt satisfied, energized, energized yeah. right. from it, even though it was like, you know, really difficult work. And so I think looking for that feeling and just being honest with yourself of, hey, this is, this is something real. And once you realize that you're, this is a true interest in your life, going all all in would be yeah. my suggestion. There's going halfway is very difficult. I think you, you just got to, Sometimes you, you got to just yeah. let go of the last bar behind you and jump for the next one. That's, <laughs> that's the, way to, the way the way to go. So yeah, that'd that's, be my final piece of advice. That's awesome. It reminds me of a piece of advice that Elizabeth Gilbert wrote in her, her book, Big Magic. But she was like, what, think of like you have to do something that you love so much that like you'd be willing to eat a shit sandwich for it. Because <laughs> it's like literally like you're going to be handed all these shit sandwiches. Like if you're writing, if you're doing coding, like whatever, like there's going to be a lot of difficult days. There's going to be a lot of hard times. And you and the only way you're going to push past those is if you're interested enough in it, if you're passionate enough about it. So passion is important. Like we, people say that word a lot, and and it, but it is really important. Yeah, I've definitely eaten some shit sandwiches on, <laughs> some on tasty, the way. Some tasty <laughs> shit sandwiches. Awesome. Well, cool. Thanks so much for sharing, man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So next up in the conversation, potluck, uh, Gabe. I think you got something to bring to the table. Yeah. So uh, let's talk briefly about. Um, uh, Sarah and I are ongoing journey uh, trying to train our dog, which has been very difficult, as both of you know. So uh, we recently, so 
quick background. Our dog Ziggy, we got as a puppy. She's a year and a half now. She's like an amazing dog. She's so sweet. She's so cute. But she's had a lot of issues. Like she was a rescue. And um, when she started to become like not a puppy anymore, she started like lunging at dogs and lunging at people. Mm. She like bit a dog like and sent it to the vet with like a pretty serious bite. It's We've had like a lot of real challenges. And this yeah. has been... I think the single biggest stressor in our lives, like easily, like we love this dog to death, but, but it's been just increasingly just like driving us crazy. There's, we just have to walk her five times a day. And like every walk was so stressful like uh, trying to avoid all these triggers that set her off. And like, you know, like it's incredibly important to keep her and other dogs and people safe. And it was just really, really stressful. And we tried so many things and made a little bit of progress, but um, hit some, like, just weren't making progress anymore. We tried meds, like, we had our doggy Prozac, like, everything. Aww. And we finally, like, two weeks ago, found this trainer called Zen Dog with, like, a completely different approach to, like, working with dogs. Like, very different from, like, your normal dog training. And uh-huh. it's been, it's early, but it's been a game changer so far. It's been really great. Wow. What, so, yeah, what is he doing differently from, like, other dog training methods that you've known about? Yeah, so, like, I feel like all the dog training that I've ever, and I grew up with dogs, so I had, like, a decent amount of experience as a kid, and then now it's Ziggy, like, all the dog training methods I've ever seen are all about, like, behavior, like, getting your dog to sit, getting your dog to stay, getting your dog to roll over, and then, like, as we've tried to, like, um, fix Ziggy's, like, lunging issues that other people and dogs been like focused on like distracting her with treats like no no Ziggy don't look at that dog that you hate look at this treat like over here like (laughs) sit and look at this treat like it's all about like trying to like get her to look at me and then if she looks at me she gets a treat um but like Zen Dog like the trainer Matt who worked with us like has a very different approach it's all about the dog's energy not their behavior so he sort of walked through like a lot of his philosophy is that like a dog can be sitting or even lying down or doing any behavior rolling over whatever wagging his tail wagging their tail but be very anxious and like and ziggy's fundamental problem wasn't whether she was sitting or standing it's that she's super anxious she's like a really nervous dog and all these Mm. things were freaking her out so like really learning how to instead of look at a dog's behavior look at a dog's energy and then all these methodologies to actually try to shift her energy and reward good energy rather than good behavior which like when you think about it makes a lot of intuitive sense but i just i've literally never heard anyone like have that sort of approach before that's awesome and and you guys have been seeing results yeah we like instantly literally like the day he came like all of a sudden our walks were transformed like not that she doesn't have any problems anymore like she does but like for like a year and a half like she's been walking us despite like i knew that she was walking us and that was a bad thing and that we needed to switch that but like i just didn't like the tools that i've been trying from like other trainers and veterinary behaviorists and with Prozac and everything like just none of it had worked and like instantly like we were walking her instead of her walking us and that's just been like a game-changing happiness shift for us just yeah. like taking so much stress out of our life and like starting to see other progress and other things too what does that look like like you guys walking her like yeah she just like walks next to, we just like I don't know she just like walks next to us and we just walk along and like she still lunges maybe every once in a while but way less and like she's like we she used to just like go all over the place and she would like like our walks used to be endless negotiations uh-huh. like ziggy wanting to do xyz thing roll on this lawn sniff this thing forever do stupid at thing x or stupid thing y <laughs> and like me being like come on ziggy let's go like we're always negotiating and like now like 
I'm or Sarah, like we're in charge of the walk. We're just walking and the dog comes along. You're the leader. Yeah. And it's just like, there's no more, like there's no more negotiating. We just go. And like, (laughs) we just don't let her like do the stuff she used to do. And it's like, it's awesome. And this has been like alleviating her anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I think like the, his like, um, I think a lot of the approach is centered around like both like focusing on energy and then like shifting the relationship between dog and human. So like, so Zen dog's perspective is like they um, like a lot of her acting out was because like so she's nervous and anxious. She just is that way as a dog. Mm-hmm. That's like whatever happened in her very early upbringing. Like, yeah. Um, and so like because like we didn't have like really like the right relationship with her, the white levels of like trust and respect because like she didn't really see us as like an alpha. Like she felt like she needed to take care of herself. Like we didn't have shit handled. So like when she saw something that seemed like scary or whatever, she was like, okay, well I just got to lunge at this thing and make it go away. Right. It's like a fear aggression. Yeah. Um, and so like a lot of it's about like teaching her that like, we're not like her buddies. I mean, we are, but like, we're also in charge. You're and, the like, leader of the pack. Yeah. And like that gives her, that can help her calm herself because like, she knows that somebody's got it handled. Like when we're out in the big scary world that like where all these things are freaking her out. And it's like, I think like another interesting thing about their approach is like a lot of times when people think about like alpha and I think like Caesar Milan, like right. I watch, it's all that sort of like, yeah, like very like sort of being almost like a little domineering and like whatever. And Matt's point, which I really like the trainer, he's like, dude, real alphas don't have to like prove that they're in charge. Like they have this very like, steady quiet like confidence that like is not about like dominating the dog but just like projecting the right energy to the dog in the right way and there's all these uh, different things you do like the dog can't sleep in your bed like <laughs> it's like a big one <laughs> uh, luckily Ziggy wasn't sleeping he's like you saved yourself like six months of pain by not having the dog sleep in your bed he's <laughs> like dog the single one. biggest problem is dog sleeping <laughs> oh, in the bed because like yeah that's like the biggest signal that like that you're, you're not, not an alpha yeah, right yeah, <laughs> dog we're is. all on equal playing fields here yeah <laughs> um, and like we like trade change the way we feed her a little bit and just doing all these like little things to very subtly make it clear that like we're in charge like um to allow ourselves to like shift into like a different like a loving relationship like a different type of like loving relationship with the dog has it changed at all how you think about how you interact or project certain maybe emotions or talking about like that idea of being alpha and communicating confidence not necessarily through commands but through how you carry yourself has it have you found this had an effect at all on you and sarah yeah, definitely. I mean, we just like we're oh, now we're like always being thoughtful about it, you know, mm-hmm. like so when we come home, we're not just like, see, like, hey, she's jumping around. We're jumping around. We're playing. We're excited. Like when we come in the house, we just wait for her to calm herself and then we engage with her. Um, and so, yeah, it's really it's really interesting to think about like all these like incredibly subtle cues that like human to human yeah. communication has a ton of like incredibly subtle cues, too. Um that, like, if you not, if nobody, like, like, with human-to-human cues, most of us just sort of intuitively understand them, or we sort of, like, grow to understand them as we grow up. But, like, yeah, with dogs, they just, like, if you don't know what the cues mean and what to look for, like, mm-hmm. on their end and on your end, like, you're just missing, like, this whole, like, complex language that's happening that they're, they're understanding, but you're not actually understanding what you're communicating to the dog. Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I feel like... For a long time, it was, probably wasn't until like Caesar Milan kind of became big. Like, I feel like the idea of like almost dog psychology, mm. like people didn't think 
I don't think people thought of like dogs having this rich of like an inner life and a complex um, and at times complicated like psychology. And like, I feel like it's just been really interesting to hear more and more about this. And, and the more time I spend with dogs, the more I realize like how true that is, how complicated their inner lives can be. And they, they can have a lot of like similar like traumas and issues that humans go through. Mm. And like, and I think starting to like pay attention to that, like, you know, like what you're talking about, like, like this seems like the Zen dog guy, like he's not about treating the behavior, right? He's not about rewarding, like sitting down or, or standing or whatever, but actually about like paying attention to the energy underneath and then working with that. Right. Mm. And I feel like that's what you would do with the humans also, right? Yeah. Like the worst parents are probably ones who like would maybe like hit their kid if they're not doing the right behavior, right? Like, they're, oh, like you're, you're not being quiet or you're not being whatever. And they're totally ignoring like maybe the anxiety that they're feeling underneath right, or like, right. or the pain or whatever. And like, and I feel like, and I feel like it's a similar thing. Like the more you're paying attention to like, not just the outlying out, outward symptoms, but like what's causing those symptoms, like what, what's going on underneath the surface. I think the more you're actually getting to the root and like, and, and being a kind of like a compassionate, like, I don't know, human being, animal owner, parent, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's it's fascinating. They, they seem like those worlds are not as far apart as we yeah. used to think. Yeah. Yeah, thinking about like what's the root cause here, right? Not looking at what's happening on the surface level, but what's happening underneath. That's awesome. Yeah, the, the probably the biggest aha moment that I just keep thinking about is like Matt, like uh, – his opinion was that we have like an emotionally like codependent, like an unhealthy codependent relationship <laughs> with the dog, which like really put like the right frame on it for me. Cause I was like a lot of our relationship with Ziggy like felt so good, but I think it felt good in the way like that, like unhealthy relationships can, you know, like <laughs> just, just cause it feels good sometimes doesn't mean it's actually like healthy. Right. And maybe it felt good for you guys, but maybe for her it was causing more anxiety in yeah. some ways. Yeah. 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 And like decentering ourselves a little bit too. Like not thinking just so much about like how we want to pet the dog and show affection to the dog, but like having to like take ourselves out of it a little bit and pay more attention to like, what does the dog want? Like she actually has all these complicated wants and needs in terms of how we interact with her that like, I was like, yo, it's a dog. We just pet her and she's happy. Like, <laughs> what's so complicated? Right. But, like, it's actually much more complicated <laughs> as it turns out. Yeah. Does she want to be pet right now? Yeah. Like, is she, is she feeling anxious? Is she like, yeah, does yeah. she want us to be like jumping all over her and spooning her? And like, it's like, what she is she? a little space. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's awesome. And and I will say, like, this is the calmest I've ever seen Ziggy. Like, every time I've, I've come and visited, um, Ziggy's always very hyper and, and loves, like, when new people show up and she's just, like, excited. And, and she's been, like, so much calmer than I've ever seen her. And you guys have been only doing this for a week and a half. Yeah. A week and a half. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, good progress. So hopefully we keep it going. Yeah, a lot more work to do. Yeah, you'll have to you have to keep us updated. Future installments of the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll throw that into quick. Picks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. And sure. uh, speaking of quick picks, let's get right into it. Let's do um, it. And you know, for anyone listening, if you have any quick picks of your own that you'd like to share, you know, send them over to us at guyswithfeelingsshow at gmail and we'll read some of them out loud. Uh, so Peter, being our guest with feelings, you'll get to go first. Um, what's your first quick pick? Sure. So I've recently revisited a video game called Journey mm -hmm. that I love, and it is unlike any other video game experience that I've I've had before. It doesn't feel like any other game I've really played, and I think it's now part of a trend I'm seeing—a very exciting trend 
of games breaking out of the boundaries that they've had and the way that people look at them and taking on more of a narrative structure, less goal-oriented type structure. Mm -hmm. They tell stories. Uh, you'll see that a lot with virtual reality now becoming more popular. Mm -hmm. um, it's an experience that's driven by you um, that's not necessarily about points or scores or, or kills or whatever it is. So right. this game... Um, came out a few years ago, but I keep coming back to it, and I still see it as very relevant and kind of a precursor to what we're seeing again with, with VR, where you're given this character, and it's very much a blank slate, so you're kind of able to put yourself into the character. There's nothing on the screen besides the environment. There's no heads-up display of any mm -hmm. kind. And, and, the, and, the, and and like the visuals are gorgeous. Like yeah. The artistic style is beautiful. Stunning, yeah. stunning visuals. The art direction. You'll while I'm playing the game, I'll often just stop and rotate the camera around and take in the surroundings. Mm. Uh, again, since there's not re it's not really goal oriented, you kind of feel like you're t you're taking a journey, as, <laughs> as the game says, uh, and you're kind of just enjoying the whole the the, the travel, the trip that you're that you're on. Um, and taking things in. So yeah, visually stunning. Um, without hyping it up too much, yeah. it, it it feels somewhat like a spiritual experience mm. um, because you feel like you really go through an emotional journey uh, in this in this world. And there are highs and lows. There's no there's no dialogue. There's very little dialogue. I should mm -hmm. say there's almost no dialogue. Um, but you interact with the world around you and in a very exciting way and there's twists and turns I don't, I don't want to give too much away right. but I would highly recommend it and it feels like a story is being played out that you are driving you, sometimes a game you might play a game that it's very much like on rails where it feels okay this is yeah. clearly I'm being First directed you a, then you do B you do yeah. B and you're hitting all the plot points that they want you to hit and what I think is exciting about this and the parallels to VR is a good VR experience is not one that tells you exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. It allows you to explore and discover and create your own storyline. Yeah. Um, so that's one one uh, to tie in. I'm going to throw in a little bonus pick real real quick. <laughs> but along that line, there's a new one called Firewatch uh -huh. uh, that is a little bit more traditional narrative storytelling, less uh, uh, you make your own decisions. But again, it's totally different than than most games you'll see out there. You are a you're a guy who recently is uh, who's having some relationship issues, so you decide to take this job as someone who goes out to a national park and sits in one of the fire towers and is mm -hmm. watching out for fires. And your only connection is with your only human connection is the woman who also works as a fire watcher uh, six miles away from you in the over radio tower, over radio. Oh, interesting. And this whole storyline develops and you do exploring and and again the visuals are beautiful. You can walk around and just enjoy the space and take it all in and um yeah, I, I, I would highly recend uh, either of the, those games, even for people who are not who are not gamers and yeah, would traditionally be yeah. yeah you would you would not need to be interested in games or need to you know have any experience with them at all I think to enjoy because again of this the storytelling narrative element and just the immersive nature of it. Yeah, I remember I played Journey at your house. And I, I think it was a bunch of like me, like in a few uh, Tiffany was there, T, right, and we were like all like just immersed in this game and like yeah honestly it, it didn't feel like a game to me and honestly even it didn't really feel like there's a story being told not in the same way like a movie is right. 
but it felt like I was just from moment to moment, I was just having like these beautiful experiences. They're like moments in the game that almost that filled me with that feeling, like welled my heart up a little bit. And like, I was like, am I going to cry right now? And like, and it wasn't cause like some character died and like, you're really sad. There was like moments of breathtaking beauty, like sliding around in the sand while like the sunset is like just peaking, like, and like, I don't know, just these moments, like, and, and feeling like subtle feelings of loss and, and discovery. Um, yeah, I don't, I've never played anything like that before. And it really opened me up to like what video games can be as like an art form. Right. Um, and another thing I, I think you touched on that was really interesting, like but using VR as an example, um, from what I've seen, I feel like video games have gone through like kind of an interesting journey. Like when they first started, like games like Pong and Pac-Man, like they were very like it was it was it was like com- competition based, almost felt like an extension of sports in a way, right? Like very objective based, like how good can you get? Like how, what is your skill level? Um, and then I think the current era we're in now, like games are taking a lot from movies, and they feel like cinematic experiences with full stories and characters. And now what you're seeing with like VR and maybe more abstract games like this is they're becoming less about a directed story or competition, but they're like about experience, like experiences and, and start to resemble a little bit more closely to like life itself. Like a lot of like amazing breathtaking moments in our life, like aren't because there was like a specific plot point or things like that, but almost something a little more nebulous and like harder to box in than that. And mm-hmm. I feel like we're seeing this art form mature in ways that it's, it's going outside of those boxes and it's pretty beautiful. Right. And it really opening up for emotional experiences and, and leaving for me, one of the big differences is that it leaves room for interpretation. Like yeah. you were talking about with journey of you felt certain ways and it wasn't because of, you know, some big momentous occasion necessarily, but it gave you enough space to kind of insert your own ideas around it. Mm. And I think that's what gives it power too, where it kind of triggers that, but lets you fill in, fill in a lot of the blanks. Awesome. All right. So that's Journey on the PS3. Journey's on PS3. I believe they did a remaster on the PS4. And Firewatch. Uh, Firewatch, the other one I recommended. You can play that one just about anywhere on your laptop, on on Xbox, on PlayStation. So that one's widely available. Cool. Sounds good. You guys know I'm not a big video game guy, but I feel like I got to check this out. <laughs> yeah. That was, like, that was a great pitch. Awesome. All right, so Gabe, what's uh, what's your number one quick pick? Um, so my first one's gonna be a little bit of a twofer. So I have two, I have two phones <laughs> you guys coming in with these twofers. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Shit, Break, breaking all the rules. So, so two phone related things. Uh, the first is seems ridiculously simple, but uh, over the last month, I've started actually answering my phone. It's been awesome. <laughs> and what I mean by that is when someone calls, unless I'm like actually like in a meeting or just doing something where I just cannot pick up my phone. I answer it. Right. Because normally you just let it go to voicemail. Yeah. I mean, so like, you know, decent number of times, some random number. And I figure, oh, it's probably a telemarketer. If it's important, they'll leave a message. If not, like, then it doesn't matter. And so like, or like it's someone that I do know who it is, you know, comes up on call ID, but I'm sort of in the middle of something and it'd be better to just call them back like at a time that's like more convenient for me because like I really need to get this thing done or whatever. Like, and so I think my tendency was like avoid answering and then just it just became a to-do later to like check mm-hmm. voicemail or call X person back or whatever. And yeah, I've been like, it's been like a nice different thing to just like answer the phone no matter what and just like <laughs> deal with the call when it comes in. And you know, sometimes like it's around telemarketer and then you just take 20 seconds and say, okay, okay, not interested. Like, bye, sorry. Um, or like, you know, and sometimes it's just, 
a quick conversation with someone who just needed something real quick and then you just checked it off rather than like made it a to-do later and then right. other times it's someone who wanted to have a longer conversation and maybe you don't have time then but you can just say like oh hey like can i call you back at x time or y time and then it's not like it's not like a stressful to do anymore it's just something you've either checked off or you've made like an actual plan with something hmm. to check off that's awesome. Yeah. So that's been really great. And then, then the other thing I did, and, and this was with Jamin's uh, help, I didn't know this was even possible, <laughs> is I recently, it was maybe a month ago, I switched my iPhone to being in just black and white. You can put your phone in grayscale. And it's been awesome. And the reason I did that is I'm on this ongoing mission to make my phone shittier so that I use it less because like, I'm just trying to treat my phone addiction um, that I think like almost all of us have uh, have developed over the last few years. And yeah, like making it black and white definitely makes the phone like, I don't know, 20, 30% less appealing to look at, but doesn't actually sacrifice any core functionality. Yeah, like, I'm looking at Gabe's iPhone right now and it, and it is very unappealing to look at. Yeah, it's <laughs> not exciting. Yeah. It's just black and white and drab. <laughs> that is the goal. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the only like practical problem is like on like Google Maps, you can't really tell like what color the traffic is. Like, and like on Spotify, you can't really tell whether your shuffle is toggled on or not. But other than that, there's, like, no actual, like, pragmatic problems that I found. It's just less appealing to look at, which is the whole point. And have you gotten benefits from it? Yeah, yeah. It's just, like, I engage with it, I don't know, maybe 10 or 20 or 30% less because it's just, like, less – it's just a little less addicting, right? Uh, like, yeah. With, like, the less sort of, like, bright, exciting colors. Huh. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, the, the last – so the last week I have – had a hundred percent less phone interaction, <laughs> uh, not necessarily by choice. My phone was was stolen, which is a story for probably another time and place. <laughs> yeah. But uh, related to what you're talking about, uh, it was very nice to have a, a phone a phone detox, if you will, mm. for uh, about a week. And what I noticed specifically, again, you talked about this idea of I think we all have some kind of addiction. That it's a very addictive device, um, social media, all of these things, there's lots and lots there that pulls you constantly pulling your attention away and your uh, attention is a resource that you have. And so it's constantly being dragged out of you when you have a phone and pulls you, pulls you to, uh, towards it. You actually brought up another one of turning off notifications for just about everything. Uh, that was a big improvement for me of not feeling like I'm constantly checking it. But not having a phone at all, it made me realize two things. One, I definitely had anxieties around um, having to get on my phone and find something interesting, check mm -hmm. on something. Always, I like, I need to get an input. I need, yeah. need, 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 need. And removing that, not even having that as an option, I actually found reduced just general anxiety and allowed me to be more present in what I was doing. A phone is a great way to avoid any moment that might be maybe a little bit boring or uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. And I definitely use it. I have used it as a, as a crutch to like, all right, let me get out of this situation that I'm right. not hundred percent comfortable with. Right. And so just forcing you to deal with that, I, again, just put me in a better mental, mental state for sure. It's so like a mind, I, mindfulness a, a bit, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Without the phone to distract you, there's just the present moment. <laughs> and you <gotta, laughs> kind of have to, to be with it <laughs> yeah and then i yeah i used to listen to music all the time on bike rides there's that was connected to my phone no music there and i just found myself way more um in in the moment hmm. uh day to day and having less anxiety about needing that that constant input of something yeah 
Yeah, I think this is going to continue to be a big challenge for like our generation, yeah. generations like behind us. Right. Like we have to solve like our current relationship with our phones is very unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they're amazing tools. Like that's why I'm not like downgrading to a Nokia brick. Like I do, <laughs> I do want to keep an iPhone. Like I really like what it gives me is awesome. But right. like the the cost is really significant. the way it controls you, just like. Like your dog, like you're saying, like you weren't walking the dog, the dog yeah. is walking you. Exactly. And the phone is rocking all of us. Yeah, all over our bikes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the alpha. The phone, we need to teach the, the phone, phone to teach the phone. I'm the alpha now. Phone. Yeah, 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 exactly. So if anyone has any other uh, sort of tips and tricks to further <laughs> start walking our phones, yeah. I'd love to yeah. hear them. Creating a healthy relationship with your phone. Yeah. yeah. We need to, to get Matt, the dog trainer, to start being a phone trainer as well yeah zen phone zen, zen phone, phone. <laughs> yeah. i mean it looks like gabe's walking that path right now right pretty soon yeah just keep updating us with new zen yeah, phone yeah. tricks pretty soon you'll be a master <laughs> yeah and then i'll like start a phone training company <laughs> next thing great um all right so uh for my number one quick pick um yeah, I guess I kind of want to push back against a trend that, that I see is really popular in our culture right now. But it's that, you know, everyone's about all about speed reading. Like, how can I read 300% faster? Like, how can I double speed an audiobook and listen to a podcast five times as fast while I'm cooking and all that stuff, you know? And it's like, and honestly, like for me, I've, I've noticed that over the last few years, it's been really helpful for me to actually do the opposite and to read slow, to slow read. Um, and I noticed that like, so with the, the, the book that I, I recommended in our last podcast that uh, liberation is, and it's kind of a book, you know, um, about spirituality and using meditation to inquire things like that. And I found myself like, even when I have like large swaths of time to, to read, I actually will, will only find myself reading like a passage or two and then I'll close the book. And I found that it really helps me to do that. Cause I'll, I'll kind of like hit upon like one topic or concept and then I stop there. And then what that allows me to do is like for the next 24 hours, like that concept is like on my mind and it's, and I'm filtering like every situation, like through it, every, everything I'm doing, like I'm, you know, if the concept is like free will or whatever, and how maybe there is no free will, then I'm like playing with that concept as I go throughout my day, as I like order something, I'm like, did I, did I choose that? Or did it just pop up? You know? And like, I'm just like playing with it and like, it's sinking into my actual experience in a deeper way than if I just like read through it and just understood it intellectually. And yeah, I found that I think this approach works really well for like self-development, uh, for meditative, like spiritual kind of stuff, things that you want it to actually sink into your experience and like change you. Um, for something that's like fiction or nonfiction, like I'm not sure that would be as effective, but um, maybe the same idea of like, if you come across something that like a passage that makes you kind of like sit and you kind of want to like take some time with it, like maybe give it that space. Maybe that's like, Oh, you know, this is a good little bookmark and maybe I'll like, you know, like we come back to it tomorrow. Um, so yeah. So slow reading I think is fucking awesome. Definitely recommend it. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a tough one for me. Cause I like, <laughs> I really like getting through books. Like I just like, like sort of trying to inhale as much information <laughs> yeah. as possible from books. So I'm like pretty like goal oriented to try to like jam through as many books as I can, like in my life. Um, but I think I've noticed recently that my like recall on books is pretty poor. Like I think mm. I have a pretty like I love Kindle highlights because then I can always go back and just sort of see the main takeaways right. that I had like instantly, which is amazing. But 
But when I read physical books, which I do more and more now, like I, I don't have that. And like, <laughs> I feel like a few months after I finished a book, I had really struggled to remember what my takeaways while I was reading it. It was like so impactful for me, but, but I sort of, I think it sort of like slips away, like the things that really landed with me. So I do think this is something I would really benefit from it, at least trying to yeah. push myself a little bit on. Yeah, you could give it a try. And I've also heard like uh, like people experimenting with different ways of engaging with the interacting with the book. So it's like it's more of like uh, you're more engaged with it. Like you talk to it or something. <laughs> <laughs> Take it on walks. Yeah. Um, no, like uh, so like walking like uh, Ryan Holiday, <laughs> the guy who he has this monthly reading list that we subscribe to, and he's got some really interesting yeah. suggestions. And I think he talks about, like, uh, taking notes, like, of all of his books. And then after the book is done, I think he, like, transcribes all the notes. Like, yeah. I think he takes them by hand and then he transcribes them to something digital or whatever. Yeah. And there's a process where you, you're processing and you're thinking about, like, everything yeah, yeah. you wrote down. That's, that's the key. Yeah. yeah. That's and, really I, smart and I know other bloggers and writers, like, have, have different systems like that where they take notes or mm. they, they, they're, like, writing or engaging with it as they're reading. Um, so it might be, might be worth experimenting yeah. with. Yeah. I've been like hesitant to do something like that cause it would slow me down. <laughs> like, but like, but I really think if I read 20% less books, but actually like got like actually remembered each one, what I got out of it, that would probably be a worthwhile yeah. trade off. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right, Pete, what's uh, in your number two? So number two is a fashion blog that I found. It's called well spent, well-spent.com. And uh, I, you know, we all live in, well, you know, two of us <laughs> live in Los Angeles currently, but we all live in California. I feel like it's a fashionable area. Yeah. I've always been interested in, in style and uh, and men's fashion. And recently I was interested in updating the wardrobe a little bit. And I was seeking out a good source of, you hear a lot in the news about all sorts of issues with the, the fashion industry, whether it's workers being exploited or the problems with the environment. Mm-hmm. And what I really like about this blog is it, its focus is it is on fashionable clothing, but it's also from companies that make it in a ethical way. It comes from an origin that you feel like you can have confidence in. Is they're at least taking um, some steps to be responsible about how they uh, create clothing. And I find it interesting right now because there's a lot of things that get a lot of attention right now as far as. Um, Things we need to be focused on as far as their environmental and human impact, cars, oil, uh, energy in general. We, we mm. spend a lot of time, oh, there's, there's emissions for cars. We've got to be very careful and we should think about driving electric or driving less and transportation, which is all very important. But I think one thing that doesn't get thought about a lot is, is fashion and the, and, and the clothing that we buy. Mm-hmm. And there's, a big, there's been a big shift in trend towards fast fashion. Which uh, I feel like is really damaging. H and M and H and M, Zara, a lot of these places, uh, Forever Twenty One, mm-hmm. places that are constantly providing new cheap product, uh, something that is basically disposable that you plan on wearing for a little bit until it's out of style or falls apart, and. Um, I think it's really not a healthy thing for us as a society to have. I think that we're missing, by buying a piece of clothing that cheap, we're missing the hidden cost behind that Hmm. of the human cost and the environmental cost. A lot of times this is from exploited workers from abroad or even in Los Angeles, there's a, they're just, there, a piece came out recently. They did an investigation. There's a lot of factories in LA. They don't pay minimum wage. They pay by the garment piece that's, that's, completed and they pay cents for every 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 garment that they create and uh, a lot you know this is mostly illegal 
illegal uh, immigrants mm. that are in the country that are being uh, that are being exploited, and uh, you know they'll threaten them with deportation if they complain. Um, there's just a lot of ethical questions behind that, but that's all, you know, we want to place the blame a lot on these companies and these industries and say they should be doing a better job. They shouldn't treat people like this. But at the end of the day, I believe a lot of that responsibility falls on the consumer. Mm-hmm. If we're only focused on the price and I want to, I want to follow this trend right now. I don't want to pay more than X amount for, for this piece of clothing. We're not looking at the cost to other people and to the environment. Another thing, I always used to think, oh, I don't want these clothes anymore. I'll just donate them. It, you know, some somebody needs these clothes somewhere. Uh-huh. It's not true. Most of that clothing just goes to waste. Like Goodwill can use right. most of the stuff they get. Probably most of the uh-huh. stuff is not actually being worn by people. You know, you say, oh, there's a lot of poverty. People do not need. They've done plenty of studies. Clothing is not what they need. Clean yeah. water, <laughs> education, <laughs> money, food, money for businesses. Those are the things. Uh-huh. They need. clothing is not a problem. So there's this false sense of, oh, I don't feel so bad. I'm like someone else is going to wear it. People are not using it. Interesting. And when you're constantly using more and more clothes, consuming more and more, there's also a huge environmental cost of dyes that are used. Uh, the agriculture behind growing the cotton, growing the fabrics, shipping the fabrics around the world. There's all these costs involved that I think is important to to consider. And we, it's our responsibility as consumers to make those choices. Um, so. This has been, yeah, really, uh, it's been, it's a small thing, but for me, it's been, it's been great to find the source and for me to be more conscientious about, can I purchase something, you know, yes, the, the, the trade-off is it's going to be more expensive, but maybe I'm going to wear this for three, five plus years instead of having something that I know, ah, in a few months and maybe, you know, maybe it won't even last me a year. I'll just get something else because it's cheap. Making that investment, paying a little bit more upfront, I believe is a worthwhile trade-off, um, and, and also, case. like, not just for your benefit, but maybe paying a little more. So maybe some people aren't exploited, maybe to help the environment a little more, right? Like, the same way that uh, some people would pay more for, like, cage-free or, like, you know, like, healthier eggs that don't treat the chicken so poorly. Yeah. It's like maybe the added cost can be towards, like, helping out that way. Right, because you know? we make that choice exactly with, with other products where right. we it's, it's not – they say a lot of it won't change because people are always just going to go for the cheapest thing. And I I reject that. I think that if people understand, again, the hidden costs, the costs behind it, we've already started to make those choices with other products that that we buy. And I think clothing is one that kind of slips under the radar sometimes. Yeah. I don't think it's very much discussed. No, I'm not, not my, not amongst my friends. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, uh, it is one of the most environmentally de- detrimental industries in the world uh, wow. underneath oil. And people just don't talk about it. There's very little research done about it. it was, there was actually a false stat, well, an unproven stat that it was the second most harmful environmental industry under oil. And I recently read a piece saying that they're actually not sure because there's not enough, not enough it's research to, yeah. gone it's into not, it but it's yeah. there are certainly certainly problems there yeah and wellspent.com well wellspent.com it's a it's a it's men's only sorry sorry ladies <laughs> uh, i'll see if i can I'm find sure there's some women's, equivalent I'm sure there's a there, women's yeah. uh yeah a resource but um yeah that's cool hopefully we'll start seeing more blogs and just more awareness of things like this in the fashion industry mm-hmm. soon great all right, Gabe, what's your number two? Cool. So um, apropos of your read slower, so I uh, <laughs> recently read a book that's sort of like my new favorite book that I'm obsessed with. It's called Ghetto Side. Um, 
I did not read it slowly. I finished <laughs> it in a weekend. I was like obsessed with it. I just like I just spent ten hours a week and just finished it. Um, but it's a really amazing book. I recommend it to anyone that's interested in like urban issues, urban crime, urban law enforcement. And I think one thing that's amazing about it is no matter what I think your current perspective on it, it's very likely that it will challenge your preconceived notions, some aspect hmm. of your preconceived notions, but in a really like smart, deep, nuanced way. Um, so it's the story. It's a story of like urban crime in black America, um, mm-hmm. but through told through the lens primarily of one case. It's based in LA. It's based mostly in Watts and like the area around Watts mm-hmm. um, of a police officer's son who's killed when he's 18. Um, and then the detective in LAPD who's trying to solve the case and ultimately does solve the case. Um, and it sort of like, um, it comes at the issue at a really different angle. It's this woman who was a, like a homicide and police beat report in the LA Times for many years talking about like a lot of the conversations around um, like Black Lives Matter is around like police brutality and police crime against uh, black Americans, which is obviously a huge and important issue. Her point is like that actually in some ways communities are over-policed, which is the primary thing we talk about. Like we talk about like Black Lives Matter and racial justice on the left, but she's like in other ways communities are actually under-policed. Like what's happening in a lot of communities is like homicides go unsolved Hmm. for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is like sort of the one of the arguments of the book is like institutions like LAPD, like they're not actually providing the resources and like the structures needed to actually, and like the tenacity needed to solve these homicides. And that's what's in large part responsible for the level of crime we see, because when there's no government, like actual structures where people know they'll be punished for crimes, like then like when there's no like government justice, then street justice takes over. And like a lot of these communities have like 30 or 40% homicide clearance rates so like most murders go unsolved Mm -hmm. and when that happens like in any society she argues i think compellingly like anywhere you go if the government doesn't have control other informal structures of control like gangs and constantly retaliation murders pop up so she sort of places like problem of gang violence and like black homicide like largely on the on the at the feet of like police institutions not being um, able or willing to solve homicides at the rate they need to. And then broaderly societally, like our interest in that actually happening, like to what she really like, pushes like the reader on, like to what extent, like when you see like young black men like killed, who maybe have some gang tats or maybe work a little gang affiliate, like, to what extent do you see them as victims versus, Oh, they were just mm. gang banging. And like, mm. that's sort of what happens. Right. Like to what extent do we really societally like see these kids as our kids? Um, that are being killed um, and to what extent do we care that their murders are being solved um, mm. so anyways Ghetto Side is a really really amazing book I cried a bunch of times mm. um, it was like really it's a really like beautiful and compelling story wow yeah I'll have to check that out and read it slow <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome um, also our dear listeners if you hear that sound in the background it, it is just pouring rain right now in LA it's just coming down hard so yeah. apologies um, all right, so my third or my second and final quick pick is um, is about the topic of exercise. Um, I've been, yeah, I don't know, like I, working out has has become a much more like like I don't know, frequent and consistent part of my life. Uh, I try to do something that makes me sweat at least you know once a day. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I, I realized that I was talking with an old friend, Jesse, friend of the show, um, last night. And uh, like, we realized that we both changed our views of working out. Like, I think I, I used to look at exercise as something that I just did for physical benefit. And if I'm going to be honest, mostly for vanity benefit, <laughs> to look better, to have a decent you know body for summertime or whatever get swole get swole um <laughs> but recently i like I, I discovered that like the way i look at working out is now it's it's more for like the emotional and like the mental benefit like i realized that when i work out like so like just immediately right after a workout i feel great like mood wise i feel great um like energy wise i'm just like i have this great natural like energy i feel like my mind is just clear. It's it's like a natural like nootropic or you know, smart pill, you know. Like I just feel like uh, I'm so much more creative and like focused. Um, and then I, I also notice just like days afterwards, I feel like my baseline mood definitely like goes up. And um, and my friend Jesse was saying the same thing. Like he he said he recently um, like he was going through a really hard time where. Um, he said that the only two things that were really helping were meditation and working out and, and for like, you know, the mood benefits. Um, and he said recently, you know, he like he hurt his ankle while playing basketball and he realized the first thought that went through his head was, wasn't like, oh, no, like I'm going to get out of shape. Like his first thought was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to be sad. <laughs> like my my mood, my baseline mood is like going to go down. And that's a bummer. Um so yeah, I don't know. Like for me, like I that way of thinking about working out has really shifted something for me. It's like a small perspective shift, but it makes me um, actually want to work out more. And I see it as like kind of like the daily thing, just like meditation or or anything that like is actually key to like my happiness. And then on top of that, the physical benefits have been pretty cool as well. Um, and I ironically, I, I think I actually found myself making more swole gains <laughs> to use your terminology um now which is funny to me i think maybe just because i'm doing it more consistently and like and i'm not stressing myself out so much about like this this end goal that doesn't really affect my day-to-day -day that much yeah so yeah it's been really cool okay <laughs> exercise for the mental health not for the physical health there you I go like it. awesome all right, well, that brings us to the end of our quick picks and to the end of our show. Um, but before we leave, let's tell the audience where they can keep with us uh, up with us online. Uh, Peter, where can people find you on the internet? So you have a Twitter, website. You know, Instagram's the one that you can usually find find me on. It is the number seven double underscore. <laughs> oh, what? S U N <laughs> seven double underscore S U N. I, I love my photography, so I usually post some stuff on there. You can I didn't even know you could do a double underscore. That's, That's awesome. Amazing. That is a real alpha move. <laughs> Real Alpha doesn't need to. <laughs> it was really, really the nine months of training that I got uh, doing software development where I can understand. Yeah, double yeah, yeah. badass. It's, it's just awesome. another character. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Gabe, where can people find you? Uh, I've been like tweeting too much at Gabe Rose uh, or my blog, GabeRose.com. <laughs> awesome. And uh, Jamin, what about you? Yeah, um, you can find me at on Twitter at Jamin underscore ye, Y-I, and that's just one underscore. <laughs> and uh, you, can also, yeah, you can also find me at jaminye.com where I blog and uh, I'll hopefully be posting more content soon. And uh, yeah, and, as, and for our podcast, you know, you can find all episodes of Guys With Feelings at guyswithfeelings.co. 
Uh, you can shoot us an email at guyswithfeelingsshow at gmail.com. Music for the podcast is by the band Broke for Free. And if you had fun listening to this, got something useful, consider leaving us a nice little review on iTunes. Yeah, or always, a mean review. Or a mean review. Works. Whatever, yeah, whatever's whatever authentic and true for you. Yeah. Uh, that would be really, really appreciated. So yeah, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, drive safe, eat your veggies, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Ha <laughs> ha.